Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Bowery Boys, episode 221, New York, capital city. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. With the second part of our celebration of New York as the first federal capital of the United States. Now, in our last show, we focused on the events leading up to the inauguration of our first president, George Washington. And we discussed where he and his vice president, John Adams, lived and worked in the city. Well, in today's show, we're going to get down to the nitty gritty, exploring some of the hallmarks of America. American government that were invented and innovated here in New York City. Because, well, we talked about where they worked. They had a lot of work to do, and mm-hmm. not just the president and vice president, but the all-important first federal Congress, because they needed to hash out all the details of how the federal government would actually work. I actually think people are going to be shocked by this particular episode. Many of the things that we lean on today to define Mm -hmm. what we even call the United States were talked about, debated, and voted upon in New York, and in particular in this little old place called Federal Hall. Today we're telling a tale of deals and compromises so important and long-lasting that it would eventually lead to the relocation of the nation's capital far from Lower Manhattan. And finally, you'll be invited to one of the most famous dinner parties in New York, nay, American Mm. history. Mm. A dinner party that featured some of our favorite founding fathers. So join us as we hammer out the details of New York, capital of the United States. Okay, Greg, so just like with the last episode, number 220, on the inauguration of George Washington, Mm -hmm. we have a lot of territory to cover in today's episode. But before we get started, I was wondering if perhaps you could situate the listener today for this episode. 
What happened in the last show that got us up to this point where Congress is in New York and ready to start the federal government? Well, we talked about, of course, the British leaving in 1783 and the Articles of Confederation, Mm -hmm. which was the document that governed the brand new United States in the 1780s. Now, the Congress that was formed by that Articles of Confederation met in New York City starting in 1785. They had been on the move, as we talked about. They were on a road trip, rolling around everywhere, (laughs) sure. They sort of crash landed here in the city. (laughs) Right, and would stay here for a few years. However, that Congress was quite weak indeed. So the U.S. Constitution was finally ratified, and a new Congress would be formed to enact that particular document, which finally had some power to really push America forward into the next century. And so in 1789, the old Congress of the Confederation dissolved forever Mm. and was replaced by the new Constitutional Congress, which met here at the newly named Federal Hall. Okay. Now, on April 30th, 1789, we had the inauguration of George Washington on the balcony at Federal Hall with pomp and ceremony and the celebration of thousands in the streets. So we have George Washington sworn in, his vice president, John Adams, and we also talked about Washington's residence over on Cherry Street right. and Adams living at Richmond Hill in today's sort of far west Soho. R- right. But we're going to spend the first half of our show back here on the corner of Wall Street and Broad Street at this old building that had originally been constructed in 1699 for city government. Here it was about to become an incredibly crucial location for the beginnings of the new American government. Right, because now they had a president in office. But there was a lot more to do. They had to, in fact, set up executive departments. They had to hunker down and hash out the rest of the details for an entire other branch of the federal government. Well, before we dive into all that important stuff, okay. I just need a little... Because you see, I'm ready. Yeah, I I've know. got a ream of you're, paper over here. You're bursting with parchments. But logistically... Mm-hmm. Federal Hall, I'm standing facing Federal Hall. Where are all these men being gathered in the building, right? I mean, they're they're all here. Sure. Now, you know, I got this great book. You know how I love old New York history Whoa. books? This is called This Was New York, The Nation's Capital in 1789 by Frank Monaghan and Marvin Lowenthal. Which magical old bookstore did you find this? It's gorgeous. Yeah, actually, this came from the U.S. Army. It was at an army base in Texas. Isn't that exciting? I bought it through Amazon. (laughs) Wow. uh, Published in 1943. So the authors described the old city hall uh, that had been retrofitted as Federal Hall this way. Quote, Through the foyer and into the vestibule of Federal Hall, these men of the first Congress pass, still arguing the question of a title for chief executive. Straight ahead and under the dome of the rotunda, they stand in groups for a parting shot to clinch the argument, and then the senators, as befits their dignity, mount by a private stairway on the left to their own chamber, and the members of the lower house proceed on across the vestibule to the hall of representatives. So that referred to a lower house, Mm -hmm. Uh, so that meant that the senate was in the upper house. You had to take a staircase to get up to the senate chambers. And today, we still refer to the Senate as the upper chamber. Right. And the House, however, is no longer the Hall of Representatives, <laughs> but, the, but the House. I think I saw that at Disney World, though. <laughs> In like 1984. <laughs> yeah. 
Continuing, the Hall of Representatives is almost square, and lopping off the corners gives it an octangular appearance. So this was a large room. It, it had 36-foot arched ceilings on the sides that went up to a height of 46 feet in the middle. Big windows, large windows that started 16 feet in the air. There was a desk and a chair for all of the members from each of the 11 states mm-hmm. who were represented Right, here. because two hadn't, two hadn't really signed on yet, but we're about to. And there was a gallery overhead for friends and the general public to, to look down upon the goings-on. I think that's very important, by the way, that the general public could just come on in mm-hmm. whenever they wanted to and listen to the enlightened men in the room. And in front of all of them on a podium was the Speaker of the House sitting raised in the front. Meanwhile, if you wanted to visit the Senate, you would have to climb the stairs from there. Quote, into this room, one hesitates to venture. It is not as large as the other, but it is filled at the moment with a smoke of debate, which makes it appear as wide as a battlefield and as dangerous to cross. There were also three large windows in the Senate chamber in the front and in the back, and those on the south side of that room opened up to a large balcony that looked down Broad Street. This was a balcony that was 12 feet deep and about 30 feet long, which is pretty wide, and it was here on that balcony outside of that Senate chamber where Washington had been inaugurated. And it would be that balcony that the Senate would be most grateful for on extremely hot summer days, in which they would sometimes have to work throughout the day. Mm. So they would take little breaks on the balcony there. Because there was plenty of hot air in there to let out. (laughs) So I'm picturing it very vividly in my mind Mm -hmm. now, and I'm now populating it with all of these men in their ruffles, and they're getting ready to debate. Now, what are some of the things that they tackled in these first days? Well, as we were talking about in the last show, the Constitution established some of the rules for how the federal government would work, but it left a lot up to this first Congress to to finally, you know, hash out. Thankfully, this Congress was extremely productive, you know, and they understood that history would judge them based on their ability to act and jumpstart the government. So they were actually able to push through an astonishing amount of legislation. Well, we can't go down bullet point by bullet point. So give me kind of the highlights reel here of the, what... <laughs> the highlights reel. Yeah, of what the... Some of the things that they got done, okay. some of the things they accomplished. So just picture the montage effect. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Well, first of all, they had to set up their own rules to figure out how debates would work. Um, how would bills be introduced and voted upon? That sort of thing. So rules. Then they had to create executive departments. James Madison of Virginia moved to create three executive departments right away. So starting in July of 1789, they set up the Department of Foreign Affairs, which would be renamed the Department of State. This would be a department that tackled issues like reestablishing trade with Great Britain, which was a prickly little affair after that war we had just had, negotiating land deals with Native Americans, border disputes, and so on. And Thomas Jefferson would be appointed the first secretary of the Department of State. Well, interestingly enough, though, he's not even in town yet. He's, no. he's in France. That's right. He wouldn't start until March of 1790. John Jay would fill in for him while he was gone. Then in August of 1789, the Department of War was set up with Henry Knox as its first secretary. 
And the following month, Congress would establish a, an army of a thousand men uh, for the Department of War. That September as well, the Department of the Treasury would be set up. And of course, Alexander Hamilton would be appointed to be its first secretary. And this department would be tasked with figuring out how the government could raise revenues, pay off war debts, set up banks, etc., this Congress is already, there are already job creators here. <laughs> <laughs> job creators, or at least revenue creators, mm -hmm. because they did pass the Tariff Bill of 1789, which permitted Congress to impose duties on goods, wares, and merchandise. So they could at least turn on the spigots and get some, some revenues coming in. They, so they really were starting at Chapter 1 with this. I mean, the, these are very, very basic rules right. of funding and, and operating the government. So we essentially have the legislative branch here. Right, Congress. Congress making rules and authorizing all of these new functions for the executive branch. Right. So those are the two branches right. that have been created. But there's a third branch, I think, that's uh, that we haven't mentioned yet. <laughs> yes. Uh, judging from the way you framed the question, Greg, I think you're talking about the judicial branch. To set up this branch, Congress passed the Judiciary Act of 1789, and this basically established the judicial system that we still have in place today. It was really tricky to work out all these details because it led to a huge battle between states' rights and, and the laws that had been passed in states mm -hmm. and federal laws and federal courts. The Constitution had been deliberately vague about all these details because they knew that if they had to hammer out all those details during the Constitutional Convention— They'd never get anywhere, and the thing would never be passed. Right. They essentially just kicked the can down the street until a further time in which they could talk about it, which was right now. Right. With the Judiciary Act of 1789, and Washington nominated Edmund Randolph of Virginia as his first attorney general. Attorney General. So right. what about the Supreme Court? Well, well, that would be set up as well. And John Jay would serve as the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court once he was done filling in, of course, for Thomas Jefferson. Sure. Now, interestingly, the three authors of the Federalist Papers, which essentially were the, the, the blog posts, if you will, the guidebook for creating the Constitution. Oh, God, <laughs> how the mighty have fallen. You just really denigrated them. But go on, go well, on. Well, anyway, but it's James Madison, who was there in right. the legislature, guiding it, mm -hmm. as you'll see very in very important ways in a few minutes. Alexander Hamilton, who's now the head of the Department of Treasury, and now John Jay. So right. those are the three authors. And here they are installed in government. Well, and Washington then had a cabinet. You know, the four men who comprised the, the president's first cabinet were Jefferson at state, yeah. Hamilton at treasury, mm -hmm. Knox at war, and Randolph as attorney general. So this seems like it's all going pretty well. Mm -hmm. Very, very productive without issues. Very were there any so. stumbling blocks in these early months? Yeah, well, yes, there were a few really contentious issues that, as you mentioned, had been punted along for years by the Confederation Congress and that now needed to be addressed. Two in particular that we're going to talk about. Item number one, Greg, you know, what to do about all the private and public debts that were incurred by mm -hmm. the revolution, by this war that had just been won. A lot of money was lost in the fighting, you know, by private citizens, but also by the local governments and by the state governments. Who would pay for this? Who would repay them? You know, would the federal government take on these debts and help people out here? So that was item one. Number two... Where would this capital's permanent home be located? 
we, you know, we mentioned this a little bit in the last episode, that there was this tension as the government was drifting around on the road and sort of settling in New York. Would it stay in New York? The Federalists wanted it to stay in New York, but a lot of people did not want it to stay in New York. But if I recall from the little excerpt that you read a few minutes ago, it started off with something about a debate about salutations, right? About right. about how to what to call the president. Right. This was a cause of much consternation for Vice President John Adams, who wanted to be proper in the way that he addressed George Washington. He was a man of protocol. Mm-hmm. He wanted to do things the right way. He'd been at the great courts of Europe. And on top of that, he was even confused about who he was supposed to be when and if Washington visited the Senate. Because when Adams was in front of the Senate, he was the president of the Senate. Mm-hmm. So what would happen when the president visited the Senate? What was Adams supposed to do? <laughs> He didn't know. You know, nobody had ever tackled that issue before. And after much debate, Hemming and Hine, in May of 1789, the Senate passed a resolution. They finally settled on wording Mm -hmm. for what title to bestow upon George Washington. Which was? Quote, His Highness the President, Protector of the Liberties of the United States. That doesn't really roll off the tongue. His (laughs) Highness? His Highness is only a quarter of it. (laughs) Well, we didn't stick with that. <laughs> no, no. The, that was passed by the Senate, but the House did not agree because they were not, unlike those highfalutin senators, yeah, the, the House up, members. the upper chamber. Right, the upper chamber. <laughs> the, the, the House was not in favor of these kinds of titles. And so they finally resolved to call him, quote, President of the United States without addition of title. And thus settled on a name, the executive branch set up the judicial branch set up, we could finally move forward with governing. Except that... Uh-oh. Well, so these orders of business were a way of creating procedures, right, to mm-hmm. roll forward. But in fact, their most important order of business, I would say, was to actually revise the Constitution. So as I said earlier, they kicked the can down the alley mm-hmm. you know, to get to resolve these things at this point. But one of the most important things that they did not resolve at that constitutional convention was one of the most important components of the Constitution that we all know and love, and that is the creation of a Bill of Rights. Essentially defining the relationship between the citizen and the government. Right. So why would these individual rights not have been included in that original document, the Constitution. Yeah, well, interestingly, many people didn't want them for a a reason that I found kind of logical, I think. For if you had an outline of rights Mm -hmm. enshrined into this document, it meant things that were not in there were then not naturally ascribed rights. If you had some rights in there, did it mean that the ones that weren't in there were those not also backed by the Constitution? Uh, Well, as we know, that's a very good question, and it's something that... Uh, people make careers out of debating today <laughs> right. the, the scope of mm-hmm. this document. So the Constitution was ratified without a Bill of Rights. Okay. And James Madison, in fact, wasn't even into this at first either. But by 1789, you had all of these different state governments chiming in. And they wanted to make all sorts of different changes. On top of it, all of those state governments had their own constitutions, and some of them did have bills of rights, which many wanted to be applied on the larger scale to the federal government. Wow. So on top of all of these other things that they were doing, they had to debate whether or not to attach a bill of rights 
to the federal constitution. Yeah, and what that would be, in fact, what would it, what would be comprised of? So perhaps one of the most sacred and even controversial parts of the Constitution would be officially debated in the summer of 1789 here at Federal Hall. Now, as I'm about to describe this and, and some of their debates that they're having, picture the following. Like, this is the scenario. You had dozens of men here in Federal Hall, but it's a very, very hot summer. It was debated from July into September. All crammed into Federal Hall on some of the hottest days of the year. All of the men rapidly fanning themselves at their little desks, many of them falling asleep, half paying attention, while you had someone like James Madison at the podium in front being really passionate and face red, sweating everywhere, steaming the room, the windows steaming. Mm. A Mr. Softy truck playing on the corner. <laughs> of course. Interrupting James Madison as he's like emphatically trying to sell people on amendment. <laughs> well, Mr. Softy was not in the picture on June 8th, 1789, when Madison presented the amendments for discussion. Now, if you're interested in checking out the original amendments and the original minutes of these particular meetings, the Library of Congress has all of them, all of the endless debates that you can look at the actual documents themselves. One of the things that really strikes me about the initial debate here is that things that they considered very, very important aren't exactly the things that would occupy our attention today. And in addition, some members of Congress didn't even find any of this of value. A representative from New Hampshire called the amendments, quote, a mere mosquito bite. They went to secure rights that were never in danger. Unquote. Hmm. So you had differing views of what they were even doing in the room. So again, here's this tension about whether or not these rights needed to be explicitly even spelled out. What were some of these rights or these amendments that they were even discussing? Well, as just one example, let's start at the start with the First Amendment, our First Amendment, which we have today. Uh, and the final wording goes a little something like this. Congress shall make no law respecting an abridgment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Right. So those are the words that we know as the, the final draft, what was approved as the First Amendment. Right. Giving us the freedom of religion and press and assembly, mm -hmm. etc. Those words are so parsed today by thousands and thousands of lawyers over the past decades, right? Now, when James Madison put forth this amendment, and he was the one that was sort of spearheading this whole thing and putting these out for discussion mm -hmm. and for voting and for debate, this is really very similar to what he actually proposed to them. In fact, some of the wording was lightly changed, but one little interesting section that was scratched off is that Madison wanted to include this tacked on at the end, nor shall the full and equal rights of conscience be in any matter or in any pretext infringed. Now, this phrase sounds a little mystifying, perhaps even a little confusing, but to quote Scott Bomboy from the National Constitution Center, what this extra addition, what it would have done, quote, while our First Amendment does prohibit Congress from establishing religion, affording broad protections for religious worship, or lack thereof, some scholars believe Madison's proposed clause would have extended our rights from the realm of belief to the realm of conduct, giving the freedom not only to believe what we want, but greater latitude to act on those beliefs, 
So that certainly would have cast the First Amendment in a much different light than how we look at it today. And so these decisions that they made in this room during the summer of 1789, these like little subtle phrases, well, these choices that they made have defined how we look at our rights as Americans for the past 225 years. So you you see that these debates that they were having about moving words around, that to them, it was just like, well, we just want to make this a little clearer. But in fact... And sometimes it actually didn't. I'm going to blame it on the hot air in that room. <laughs> so much hot air. In fact, the representative Edward Rutledge from South Carolina, describing one particular day in August, said, quote, There was more ill humor and rudeness displayed than has existed since the meeting of Congress. Another man said, quote, The weather was excessively hot and the blood warm. <laughs> so on August 24th, the House sent 17 amendments up to the upper chamber. 17. <laughs> 17 amendments. amendments. Okay. And then it would come back down, now whittled down to 12 amendments. Okay. And the following week, Washington from Federal Hall would officially send the amendments for ratification to the states. Okay, but, but wait a second. So the House passes 17, mm-hmm. sends it upstairs to the Senate, passed 12. Right. Uh, she went down a few sizes. Went <laughs> Slim down. But as we know, there are 10 amendments in the Bill of Rights. So Mm -hmm. what happened? Forget the first five. What happened to the other two? So when it was officially ratified on December 15th, 1791, when the Capitol's no longer in New York, it went down to 10. So the two that got kicked out along the way uh, because they were voted down by certain state governments were conveniently the First and Second Amendments. So the First Amendment that we know and love, which is press and freedom of religion was the third amendment it became the first amendment because of the two got kicked out those two being article one which established the size of the house of representative based upon the census believe it or not tom it's still on the table that we, we could technically still vote for that now. It was never, there was no expiration date. Oh, interesting. I said we vote on it right now. <laughs> hear ye, hear ye. And what was the second article? The second one concerns congressional salaries, which is, you know, always a hotbed issue. But that one was finally ratified in May of 1992. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it became the 27th Amendment. But you mentioned that it was George Washington. Mm-hmm president of the United States, Mm -hmm. who sent these 12 amendments off to Mm -hmm. be ratified. Well, now, Washington was also at the center of another long-held tradition in American government that would happen just a few months later on a cold day, not a hot day. And that would be on January 8th, 1790, he would rise to give the very first state of the Union address. It would be 1,089 words, straight to the point and the shortest one in history. And believe me, we've all heard a lot of long-winded State of the Union addresses, haven't we, in our lives? (laughs) Complete with special surprise guests. (laughs) Yes, it's true. By this time, by the new year, 1790, that presidential mansion that he lived at, you know, on Cherry Street. Well, it was completely unacceptable, as we know, from Ms. McIver's and her plumage. It was way too small 
Mall for all official functions. So on February 23rd, 1790, Washington and his household moved to a bigger house near Bowling Green at 39 Broadway. It had a much more breathtaking view of the harbor with glass doors and an enclosed patio. And there was even a little wharf, a private wharf that they could use. Wow, it sounds much fancier. It was, yes, very fancy. It was a huge house. In fact, it was owned by a merchant named Alexander Macomb, who he and his family still lived in one half of the house. And so Washington and his household moved into the other half. I should also stay for the record that Macomb was one of New York's biggest slave owners at this particular time. And Washington moved into the house with his slaves that had come up from the plantation in Mount Vernon. So by this point in 1790, the federal government has essentially been formed here in Lower Manhattan. We have all three branches. We have the House. We have the Senate. We have all these departments. We have Madison. We have Hamilton. We have Washington. We have John Adams. But there was one missing piece to this American puzzle, and his name, Thomas Jefferson. He gallivants into the city in the spring of 1790, and with him, he'll bring the government's eviction notice from New York. We'll talk about him and New York's final days as the capital of the United States after this. Okay, Greg, what you left us before the break with Thomas Jefferson, Secretary of State, ready to sashay into New York. Right, and he arrives in May of 1790. Now, he's not a man that we normally talk about on this show, because he's never really in New York. Mm. He doesn't usually influence New York's history. He's no Hamilton. So then can you introduce us very quickly to him? Well, Mr. Jefferson from Virginia was the author of the Declaration of Independence, Mm -hmm. one of the crucial founding fathers in 1776 in the early days of the Revolutionary War. He then became the foreign minister to France for several years, and this actually influenced his thinking about how America should be formed. So like our ambassador to France when we were under this other yeah, con- Confederation mm-hmm. Congress. And by the way, I should note that his own writings and philosophies then influenced those people in France. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. 
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Bring their revolution. Right. Because he would have been over there during the time of Louis XVI. He was a court at Versailles. One of the world's most important thinkers at this time. And he was also a great influence... With James Madison here in the First Continental Congress. Fellow Virginian. And conversely, in ideological combat with Alexander Hamilton and John Adams. Well, Mr. Jefferson arrived in town, of course, to take the role of Secretary of State. He took up a small house at 57 Maiden Lane. 57 Maiden Lane. I'm not picturing it. What's even, what's there today? Well, there's a charming little mid-century plaza called Home Insurance Plaza. That's there. But you can find a little plaque that marks the spot where Thomas Jefferson lived for the spring and summer of 1790. He moved in with his daughters and with his slaves, including Sally Hemings, who had also lived with Jefferson in Paris. Now, also arriving to the house here in Maiden Lane was Sally's brother, James Hemings, who was also a slave owned by Thomas Jefferson. Well, his story is really fascinating. He was only 25 years old when he moved here to the house in Maiden Lane and became the house cook. But he had been with Jefferson in France for these many years and had thus learned the ways of French cooking. So, so then in 1790, when he arrived here, he was actually perhaps one of the most accomplished chefs in America in 1790. Working and living in the Jefferson household. Yeah. Okay, so Jefferson lived here in this house on Maiden Lane from 1790, you say he moved in 1790? Yeah, it was from May to September, just a few months. Wow. He wasn't really a big fan of New York. He said, quote, spring and fall, they never have, so far as I can learn. They have 10 months of winter, two of summer, with some winter days interspersed. (laughs) However, after moving in, this house would bear witness just a few weeks later to what some have called the most momentous dinner party in history. Okay, I want to get to that dinner party. Yeah, Um, we we do. We we all do. Talking (laughs) up this dinner party, and it's it's really important. But we have to rewind a little bit to understand the importance of that particular meal. Okay. So as I just mentioned, there were these two crises. Congress was sort of deadlocked over these two issues of where the capital should reside, residency, and what to do about the assumption of state debts and also private debts incurred by the Revolutionary War. So these two things are hanging over Congress. This was the debate that surrounded what would be called the Residence Act that would determine the permanent place of residence for the U.S. federal government. So why didn't they just decide to keep it in New York? Well, that was Hamilton's preference and the preference of the Federalists for several good reasons, you know. Their argument was, you know, why shouldn't the governing power be located in the same city as, as the economic and the cultural powerhouse? 
That's how it was in London and in Paris and in Amsterdam and Rome. Also, it made logistical sense. You know, people voyaged by boat and by ship, and no city was better connected than New York City. Communication was easier, and transportation of dignitaries and members of Congress would be easier if it was based in New York. And New Yorkers liked having them there, especially the financiers, who were reckoned to get a lot more power uh, out of this connection. Well, and also just the people who ran like the infrastructure of the government. There were a lot of private enterprises that were benefiting from Mm -hmm. the seat of government. Think of all of the printers, the ports, you know. All the the, coffee houses. The coffee houses, the banks, the people kind of who understood how... Uh, the government worked and provided services to it. Even the theater, because George Washington loved the theater. Well, and that actually was one of the criticisms. It had too many aristocratic holdovers that reminded people of the previous power. It, It struck many people as simply too British. Well, certainly Hamilton was a proponent of staying in New York, but certainly Thomas Jefferson, who lived in Virginia, was more of a gentleman farmer. That's right. Certainly did not look kindly upon this idea. No, he envisioned a country of small farmers uh, and gentlemen farmers like himself who would tend to their lands and be in touch with nature and with God and be guided, you know, by their own strong moral compasses. And those compasses were out of whack, you know, when they came to (laughs) New York. Mm -hmm. Bad things happened. New York, it was just the opposite of all of this. It was a city that was guided by money, you know, and it was was distracted by vice. So according to Jefferson then, for the sake of the moral direction of the country, and in order to be in touch with the issues, you know, that were confronting the lives of quote-unquote real Americans, the leadership needed to get out of the city. So did the Federal Congress here at Federal Hall, did they have a proper vote on this? Sure. Yes, actually. It came up several times. In August of 1789, so four months after Washington's inauguration, the House agreed that the new capital should be located on the Susquehanna River in Columbia, Pennsylvania. Excuse me? You know, over in Wright's Ferry. After all, Greg, the, the town had just changed its name to Columbia the year before. Mm. They were ready to go. So that was a house. Ready to go to Columbia, Pennsylvania. Right. However, the Senate picked another spot, Germantown, Pennsylvania, a town at the time that was just northwest of Philadelphia. Obviously, the capital did not re- relocate to either of those places. Germantown failed by one vote, and Madison had the whole thing shelved until the next year. Mm. So that was one debate and a failed one at that. Right. And the other contentious bill being discussed was the Assumption Bill, in which Congress was wrestling with the state debt that had been incurred by the Revolution. So these states, after the war, had to rebuild, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. And this was expensive, especially in the northern states where a majority of the fighting in the Revolutionary War had taken place. And so the southern states might have been a little resentful of paying a little bit extra money. Well, they had also incurred less damage, and it cost them less to rebuild. But backers of a strong federal government, including Alexander Hamilton, wanted the federal government to assume the state's debts, right? This would help the states out because it would wipe the the debts off the state bill. But it would also, at the same time, make the states indebted to the government. And along the way, it would help establish the public credit of the U.S. government. But as you mentioned, the South didn't think this was fair. And James Madison, you know, representing Virginia 
which was a state that had already paid off half of its war debts, and Jefferson, also from Virginia, they were entirely against this, you know, because it, it seemed lopsided. So Hamilton here is really hot for this idea, but what's he going to do with the, with the debt? Right. Well, Hamilton had a rather revolutionary idea. Instead of just paying off the debt in whole, he, as director of the Treasury, could maintain the debt instead. They could raise enough revenues to just pay the, the interest on the debt instead of paying down the debt. And this would, among other things, establish a strong credit for the country and strengthen the union. And so how does a national debt make the country stronger? Well, think of all of the people who loan their money to the federal government, right? Mm -hmm. They would be getting a nice return for their loan because the government would be paying them interest on Mm -hmm. their loan. But they would also become cheerleaders for this new federal government, supporters of this new government, because they were suddenly invested in the government and they Mm -hmm. wanted the government to succeed. Mm -hmm. So Hamilton understood that by just paying them back, you know, interest on their loans, he could create this whole world of investors in the government who wanted this new fledgling government to succeed, thus establishing the credit of the new nation. So both of these matters would come to a head at Jefferson's home here on Maiden Lane on June 20th, 1790. This is the stuff. This is the legendary stuff. This is mm-hmm. of, of lore. People have been talking about this night. And you'll see this in basically every history book about New York. Sometimes dubious retellings, romanticized accounts, It's true that I feel like I've heard all sorts of different retellings of this, but in fact, there are very few accounts of what actually happened. Well, most of the tellings of the story involve Jefferson and Hamilton crossing each other on the street in front of George Washington's house on Lower Broadway, at which point Jefferson invites Hamilton to his house for dinner and also invites James Madison so that together these two in Jefferson's presence can hash out a compromise that works for both parties. Well, do we know what happened at the dinner? Like any specifics that came out of it, this mysterious dinner party? Yes. Well, Thomas Jefferson wrote an account of this dinner party decades later in 1818. He wrote, about Hamilton, quote, I proposed to him, however, to dine with me the next day, and I would invite another friend or two, bring them into the conference together, and I thought it impossible that reasonable men consulting together coolly could fail by some mutual sacrifices of opinion to form a compromise which was to save the union. It was finally agreed that whatever importance had been attached to the rejection of this proposition, the preservation of the union and of concord among the states was more important. And a little bit later, there had been before propositions to fix the seat of government, either at Philadelphia or at Georgetown on the Potomac. And it was thought that by giving it to Philadelphia for 10 years and to Georgetown permanently afterwards, this might, as an anodyne, calm in some degree the ferment which might be excited by the other measure alone. So two of the Potomac members agreed to change their votes, and Hamilton understood to carry the other points. So that is Jefferson's account of his dinner party. And and really, we'll have to just go with this account <laughs> because no one else was in the room where it happened. The room where it happened? The room where it happened. 
That was our one Hamilton the Musical reference. <laughs> it's hard to just contain it to one reference <laughs> yes. in this show. So the result was that these two acts, the Resident Act and the Assumption Act, were passed that summer of 1790. The Residence Act, which was passed in July, stated that land along the Potomac River would be the site of the permanent capital, and it was up to Hamilton to find the necessary votes in the North for its passage. So he got the New York delegation to support this. Meanwhile, the Assumption Act permitted the federal government to include assumption of state debt in the government funding bill. And Jefferson would be in charge of getting Virginia to support that so that they had the necessary votes for that to pass. The passage of these two acts together is commonly referred to as the Compromise of 1790. I've even seen it, the Great Compromise. That's right. It was great. But they got out of town almost immediately after this great compromise. They went to Philadelphia, right? Why did they go there? Well, because Hamilton needed two more votes to fulfill his end of the bargain. And so he negotiated with Pennsylvania to vote for Mm. the act. And in such, moved the capital for the period of 10 years back down to Philadelphia, during which time the nation's new capital uh, could be constructed. Well, New Yorkers must not have been very pleased. And of course, they even held it against people from Pennsylvania for many years afterwards. But, you know, Hamilton took a more rational approach. I think, you know, he he thought that the Assumption Act and the credit of the United States were actually more important than whatever city this capital was going to be based in. Because really, without this credit, the government could fail entirely. So he found it more important to move the capital if that would mean the ultimate success of the United States. Well, in the long run and in in the bigger picture, that was the right decision. Another one of our favorite books, Gotham, sums it up into one nice little sentence. No longer the capital city. Its destiny was to be the city of capital. So the federal government got out of there fairly quickly, and by the new congressional session in December of 1790, they were in Philadelphia in Congress Hall, which is the building right next to Independence Hall. You know, when you right. visit that that grand campus of all the, the famous historic structures with the Liberty Bell and the Constitutional Center. And unlike Federal Hall in New York City, Congress Hall is still around. In fact, Federal Hall would not last very much longer. It would be torn down in 1812. Maybe that sounds absurd, tearing down such an important building. But keep in mind, it was constructed in 1699 from elements of the actual wall for which Wall Street is named. So Mm. it's really, really old. Three decades later, in 1842, would be the current structure, which was built as the U.S. Customs House. And in 1855, took on a new responsibility as the U.S. Sub-Treasury Building. So today's building, uh, Federal Hall National Monument, was constructed in 1842. 1842, right. So many decades after the events of our story today. But if you go to Federal Hall today, it essentially serves as a de facto museum and tribute to these days of New York as the capital city. And if it's not on tour someplace, you can even see the very Bible that was used for Washington's inauguration. Right. It's usually home there at Federal Hall. You know, there are no other structures that exist that we've talked about in this story, with the exception of St. Paul's Chapel, which was where George Washington would go to service. And the box where he sat is still preserved today. 
but places like Washington's old home on Cherry Street, that's demolished, completely vanished. There's a plaque that marks the spot, but it's so difficult to find, mm. in fact, that we <laughs> actually have this in our book, uh-huh. Adventures in Old New York, but th- we had to I sc- couldn't find it. Couldn't find it, so we had to scratch out. We thought it was gone. Right. Have <laughs> but, you seen it? No, but I've I've seen other recent pictures of it. It's just it's so hard to it's difficult to get to. And but it's so, somewhere near one of the on ramps at the base of the Brooklyn Bridge. Right. On the yes, obviously on the Manhattan side. It's a mess down there. <laughs> but the other houses are gone, of course. The house on Maiden Lane, Alexander Hamilton's home on Wall Street is gone, and the second presidential mansion uh, on Broadway near Bowling Green is also gone. Federal Hall, though, it remains a powerful symbol of purity and the potential of American government, more so than almost any other building in New York City, at least with these rich connections to the founding fathers. The site is currently operated by the National Park Service, and today it's still the location sometimes of protests. And speaking of protests, weren't you just at Federal Hall during a protest? Yeah, weirdly enough, I was down there two weeks ago. Like the when we released part one mm-hmm. of the show, January twentieth. Yes, I was walking around, and sure enough, there was a huge protest right there along Wall Street. Like that area is still so vital, and and represents so many things to so many different people. However, it should be noted that George Washington still resides, in a way, in front of Federal Hall, down on Broad and and Wall Street. Down there with hundreds of tourists taking his photograph. This, of course, is a gigantic statue that was unveiled here in 1883, sculpted, Tom, Mm -hmm. by John Quincy Adams Ward. No, No relation to Washington's VP, John Adams, or Adams' son, the future president, John Quincy Adams. But it was on this spot, and this remains a focal point for this story, for the olden days when New York was the capital of the United States. For some interesting images pertaining to the show, please visit our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com. For more on this fascinating story, you can also join us on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. And Tom, I just realized I didn't even mention the fact that the Bowery Boys spinoff podcast, The First, is a tie-in into this show. That's right. It is about the invention of the electric chair and concerns some of the interpretations of the Eighth Amendment and the so-called, quote, cruel and unusual punishment. You can find Greg's spinoff show, The First, the same place you found this podcast. Just search for The First Podcast. We want to give a special shout out to our Patreon supporters who have made it possible for us to produce a new show every two weeks and to expand the things that we do and bring you a lot more exciting goodies related to New York City history. If you're not already a patron, check out patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys. And you can see all of the different levels starting at a dollar a month that will help support us in our quest to produce more of these shows. We'd even like to take it weekly if possible. So these things are possible because of your support. And to say thank you, we have extra audio recordings, bonus podcasts, and Actually, speaking of which, Greg, um, we sent Mm -hmm. out an email a few weeks ago to let people know that Patreon has upgraded their platform. So if you are a Patreon subscriber, they've made it now easier than ever to automatically subscribe to all of our bonus podcasts so that they will go in automatically to the same place that you receive the Bowery Boys. 
And we have a special goodie being prepared for the very next Patreon Extra. I think you're talking about our first ever Patreon-only trivia challenge that we're going to pose in our next bonus podcast, the winner of which will receive a special signed copy of the Bowery Boys book, Adventures in Old New York. So if you're a patron, look for that in your podcast feed in the coming days. And finally, we have a -a once-in-a-lifetime live event coming up in April. We'll tell you more about it on the show, but if you want a little sneak peek and get your tickets now, now, go to the blog BoweryBoysHistory.com for more information. Greg, I know you said finally, but finally, finally, the Bowery Boys are looking for a spring intern who can help us with our recording and editing of the show here in New York City. If you think that you would make a good Bowery Boys intern and you're available during the week to help us record and edit, drop us a note and say hi. You can reach us at Tom at Bowery Boys Podcast or Greg at BoweryBoysPodcast.com. We look forward to hearing from you. And on that note, thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.